design thinking is mm -hmm. sort of where we're headed. But the, the thing I'd like to set up is how thoroughly immersed you are within design and architecture circles. It's up to you how far you want to okay. go. But you started in architecture, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, um, I'm Mexican. You know, I think that's quite relevant as well for the sort of sake of the conversation. Uh, I'm Mexican. I'm from a small town in, in Mexico called Zamora. It's a small town in the state of Michoacán, in the center of Mexico. It's a small city, you know, 200,000 um, inhabitants. And uh, I grew up there, you know, in the 70s, um, basically 70s and 80s. So I didn't have any relationship with the internet until very late in my, in my um, teens. No? So um, when I was like, around um, 15, no, like 17 years old, I bought my first computer. That was a turning point of, of my, my, my career, no? my, my whole career. Because I bought the computer and um, I brought the computer home because at that point Mexico was very close in terms of um, commercial. commercial. You could, it was very difficult in Mexico to get a computer. And what's the size of a computer? Is it, are you bringing this in the No, no, no. It was, a, it was a very personal computer. It was actually kind of, of a toy mm -hmm. a computer. No? It was, a very, was made by Mattel. You mm. know Mattel, the, the, the company that makes toys. So um, I saved money because I, I've been working like all my life. You know, when I was young, you know, I did this stunt. So I had saved some money. And with this money, I, I asked my, my uncle that uh, used to go travel to the States a lot to bring me a counterfeit computer from the States. So he brought it a kind of counterfeit so I didn't pay taxes and stuff. But when I opened the box of the computer, the computer didn't have a manual because, I don't know, the computer came out without a manual. No? So... You don't have uh, any kind of um, um, customer service, you know, in counterfeit uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> things. Like, I didn't have a, a manual on the computer, so that was very, very important. It was very frustrating at the beginning because I had a computer, but I didn't know how to use it. And I was in Zamora, a small town in the center of Mexico. I didn't know, I didn't have anyone to ask how to use a computer, no? So I have to learn myself. I'm a self-taught programmer because I just start clicking on the computer and, you know, learning about, about that. So when I, when I got my second computer, you know, a proper PC, you know, we're talking about the 88, 87, something like that. I bought a PC and with my PC, I got all these bunch of programs, you know, like the desktop publishing programs. PageMaker at that time was PageMaker was the, the PageMaker, the, the software for, for desktop publishing. And that for me was a game changer completely, no? because it was like, whoa. The things you see on the screen, you can have it on a paper for me because you couldn't do that before on, on, that, on that time no? because you had, had WordPerfect and all these kind of software that you didn't see like properly. So that started my career as a graphic designer because I wanted to become a, a graphic designer. Uh, my objective was really working with the computer. No? So I was doing graphic design because I, it allowed me to work on the computer and to get things done. So I started doing, uh, the, for example, I set up the... Um, the newspaper for my high school. Mm. I, I set up the team and I set up the newspaper. So I set up a newspaper just to use my computer to use the graphic design of the newspaper. And what does is, what is graphic designer mean in that time period? Are you looking to people as role models? No, no, no. I didn't even know what the graphic design yeah. was. I didn't even know what Did graphic design Did you conceptualize it as graphic design? Or no, no, it, not at all. Not I want to use my computer. I want to use my computer. And it's really cool, you know, to have in a paper what I put on the screen. No? Mm. I mean, I read newspapers, of course. It was really cool to be able with your own hands to produce something that was out there. Mm -hmm. For me, it was this shift, paradigm shift. No? I was like, whoa, this is really cool. No? Actually, 
I can control everything in my house, you know, with my, my limitations, of course. But I could produce uh, the newspaper in my bedroom and send it to a printer and have the newspaper, you know, rolling over all, all the school. So that was really, really a game changer for me. You know? So we, we did it with this. I set up a team. We set up the newspaper. And uh, we actually produced the, the newspaper for, for a whole year. No? I wanted to study architecture because I always wanted to be um, not an architect, but I always wanted to be an, an, an inventor, no? something to do with creativity. So when I uh, was old enough to go to university, I went to architecture. And uh, I keep on doing graphic design on the side. You brought your computer. Yes, of course, I brought my computer. So I keep on uh, doing graphic design on the side, no? which was very, very important for, because... At that time, with the experience I had, you know, nobody in the, the whole country had as much experience as I, as I did. You know, I mean, there were like, I don't know, 10 people in the whole country hmm. with that much experience on computers doing graphic design. And I was super young. No? So for me, it was super easy. It was very, very easy to get a job. Uh, when I was working, when I was studying, I was working as well. And this is still in Mexico. You're, it's still in Mexico, you're... yes. I moved to Guadalajara because in Zamora, University of Zamora, didn't have an architectural degree. So I went to Guadalajara. And I studied architecture there. In Guadalajara, I studied at ITESO. ITESO is one of the universities that had all the legacy of Luis Barragán, because Luis Barragán is from Guadalajara. And uh, his uh, theoretical partner is um, Ignacio Díaz Morales. Luis Barragán didn't like to write or to theorize a lot. And he has this partner, he's a very good friend of him, which is Ignacio Díaz Morales, who did all, like, all the, the, the theoretical uh, writing around the, the Barragán uh, way of um, designing. I'm thinking, so he's the founder of my school. Hmm. So in my school was very, very, I mean, the, the presence of Barragan was like very, very, extremely heavy, you know? very, very heavy. So I studied there for five years. And uh, then I went to, um, I finished my degree and uh, I wanted to travel. You know, when I finished my degree, I wanted to travel and I moved to Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, uh, it was very easy because I wanted to come to Europe, but I didn't have the money because it was this, remember this Mexican crisis about, um, 96, somewhere there. The huge Mexican crisis. So it's post NAFTA. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I went to Los Angeles to get some money to travel to, to, get, to come to Europe. So I've been there for a year or something like that. With your computer? With my computer. And no, actually, I didn't go, I didn't go to my computer. I sold my computer. Was that a difficult moment? Did you, did you have a deep connection to the... Yes, yes, I did. Yeah. But uh, the, the good thing about the, the experience I had in graphic design... That for me was very easy to get a, um, a job in graphic design in Los Angeles. Hmm. So actually, it was very cool because I get to use like the latest computers and the, the huge Macs, you know. Because uh, until there I had the PC, but I, then I started using the Mac in, in Los Angeles. At this point, so you you finished the the architecture in in, in Guadalajara, and this is your practicing period. Exactly. I see. Okay. I, I, I but in your mind, it was always Europe as the trajectory. You saw. Los Angeles is the stopping point. Exactly, as a stopping point mm -hmm. to, to, to come to Europe because I, I knew the States very well, but I'd never been to, to Europe. So yes, I worked there as a, as a graphic designer for a while and I get some money, I saved some money and I moved to London. So I went to London and, uh, well, I, um, I started working in, in London, you know, as a busboy in a restaurant, a typical thing. But I keep on trying to get a job in, in somewhere. No? I used to go a lot to the Architectural Association uh, so I went to Architectural Association. I used to go a lot to see all the conferences and stuff. And I was like, oh, I want to work here, no? But of course, all the architects want to work at the Architectural mm -hmm. Association. 
So uh, I found a path, very interesting path, no? because with my experience in graphic design, it was very easy for me to get in, to sneak in to the publications department. Because I had a lot of experience, I was a graphic designer and an architect. Mm. So I was very useful to them. So I started working there as a, as a, as a book designer for the Architectural Association. And it was very, very interesting, no? because... I mean, I used to get to know all the architects that uh, were teaching at that moment, no? And are you still a, a sort of unicorn in this time period? You know this term? Yes. The, you know, they have these job applications that say, you know, licensed architect plus, uh-huh, so you, you know, <laughs> intense uh, qualifications with graphic design back in this time period. would be, They clearly have somebody in mind. Is this, are you still an anomaly? Uh, yes, I think so. No, yeah. I, I think I think in totally. the field at that time. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. No, because I mean, um, architecture, I think in general has this um, not disrespect, but I think you know because uh, has this feeling of superiority on the rest of the design uh, fields. No, yes, because I mean, architects tend to be more more uh, deep inside into the into thoughts. No, are more more um, more thoughtful, are more thinkful. I would say. Because of the practice, I think, mm. you know, because the practice forces, especially certain profile of architect, you know, is like um, very deep into, into critique, into theory, stuff like that, that gives you a lot of tools, you know, to be very well grounded in these terms of uh, theoretical aspects, you know? which the other uh, design areas lack a little bit. You know, it's, it's very funny because I always say, you know, like the architects makes probably one of the worst graphic designers, you know? Because they, they think they can do it, and they, they don't. They don't know. So it's a, it's very very interesting. So yeah. So I was working there as a, as a book designer for a while. Then I moved to some other companies. I worked for the Economist and for Fidon, and uh, I keep on working as a book designer. So I never had an experience because I never had worked as an architect up to there. And when you go to other publications, it seems like you're also getting into infographic manipulation right exactly yeah, yeah. Um, what i was doing in in um, the economist i was uh, um, designing a magazine a yearly magazine they do which is called the world in hmm. the world in is uh, the forecast for the years to come so i was doing that and in part of the, the the design i was doing there was taking care of the infographics you know and they are learn i learned a lot a lot of uh, i mean during my whole career you know i've been learning a lot from professionals directly you know because I've been working with graphic designers, with journalists. Because when I was in Zamora, for example, I was working the, in the local newspaper, you know, designing the local newspaper. So I was working with these old-time journalists that they didn't know how to turn on the computer. Mm. But I was there doing the, the computer for them and actually learning a lot uh, from them. No? So uh, the economists, I learned a lot about this um, graphic communication in terms of how to present information that is actually valid for an article and how to extract actually knowledge from this information. Mm-hmm. It's not just numbers, but in the economists are very, very rigorous in that. Every single chart is there for a reason, and it tells a story. So I think this is it's an extremely a big outcome like I took off from this, from these years. Understanding that communication is a key element as well, you know, and presenting your facts in a, in a way that uh, represents a story or tells a story is, is, uh, is so important. Mm. So from there, I started getting the, you know, the little thing about, it's like, okay, has been already like almost five years since I graduated. I never worked as, a, as an architect. So I was like, whoa, uh, but I'm doing quite great, quite, quite good on, on, on book design. No? So I had this dilemma, no? should I keep on doing uh, books 
or should I jump into architecture? Because it was time to take a decision. So I made a decision and I was like, okay, I'm going to work for Zaha Hadid. I'm going to try to work for Zaha Hadid. If I get it, okay. If I don't get it, I keep on doing books. Mm-hmm. So I applied for Zaha, for Zaha, Zaha's office. And they got me. No? The, the, I, got the, I got the interview and I got the job, which was like super, super interesting. I think this is where, you know, the unicorn thing hmm. really applied, uh, applied as well. No? Because I was such an odd person because I remember, can you imagine, you know, the amount of uh, CVs they got at Zaha did office. I mean, at that time we were a very small office. No? So I worked there for two years, which was like super interesting as well, no? working on this. At that point, uh, there wasn't many uh, buildings being built. You know, all the all of them. Yeah. We were doing a lot of competitions. This is the sort of raw stage of yes, Zaha Hadid's. Exactly, yeah. because I mean, it was Vitra, Vitra, and um, there is this pavilion in in Germany, a flower pavilion, and uh, basically that was it. And she hasn't built any any anything, mm. so we were doing a lot of competitions, a lot of competitions, and from that period we started winning a lot a lot of competitions. Mm. So it was a huge experience for me. You know, again, a game changer totally, you know, because I was able to work with them at the time that the office was super interesting, you know, because we were 12 people in the office. You know? We were working in the same room and we were 12 and like very well integrated. You know, we saw Saha every single day. Saha was involved in every single uh, decision that was made. You know? So it was, you know, working elbow with elbow with her was an amazing experience. No? Mm. It was really, really, really interesting. No? From from there, you know, the office started growing, like this um, phenomenal growth. When I left the office, uh, the office was like 60, 65. I saw the transition, you know, from a studio to an office, which for me was super rewarding because I had the experience of working in a studio, as I had the studio, as I had the office. No? So I had these, these two experiences, which was really, really interesting. And um, in that, out of curiosity, in that yep. transition, do you see um, uh, a, a loss of flexibility or a loss of exploration when you go from studio to office? Not very much, because at that point, you know, we were an office, we started an office, 65 uh, people office, but we were still working a lot like a studio. You know, it was a bit uh, messy, you know, there were no ranks, for example. I mean, all the people that we were uh, on the first stage became like the, the, the bosses, but not really. I mean, we earn a little bit more than the rest, but uh, I mean, there wasn't no really a real structure. So we work, we're still working like this kind of guerrilla style. No? Mm-hmm. So each of us has like a, his five or six architects that jump into projects or stuff, uh, stuff like that. No? At that point, you know, big projects started to, to become reality. So big teams started to come together. No, like there was a Wolfsburg team for the, we started doing the Wolfsburg building. So for example, they were slightly more organized, no, because there was just a team, you worked in a team, you were, were part of a team. But we were inventing everything, you know, because we, we were setting up the office. Like the, we didn't have any standards for name filing, for example, no, or any kind of stuff. So these early stages as an office, it was a bit chaotic as well. Hmm. So I didn't see any lack of, 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 um, Answering your question, uh, because we were still operating more or less with the same the same um, philosophy, but on a bigger scale. And so, from there to from there, what I arrival to Spain. Yeah, what I what I what I found out is like okay, well, because my first project with Saha was, you know, the a proposal for the um, Vienna Museum, Albertina Museum in Vienna, ten thousand square meters, 
And my last project was a competition I won for the big development, more like 100 million uh, square meters um, site development in Singapore. Uh, master plan. It was a master plan. No? Um, so I didn't have any experience, you know, doing like real architecture. No, like I didn't. I never worked in a house, for example, no, or any smaller scale project. I never worked in a small scale project. So I had this feeling that I was missing that. So my my and I was getting tired of London as well, you know, because London is a super tiring city. It's, it's very very uh, caustic. No, it's, the, the, the the toll you pay for being in London, not just economically, is super high. No? Hmm. So I was getting tired of London as well. So I was like, okay, it's time to go to Spain. So I started looking for a small office in Spain where I could you know, deal with all the details of a small office. Why Spain? I mean, was Spain always the trajectory? Yeah, from... it was, uh, always was my, my trajectory. And I wanted to come to, to London and uh, to live in Spain. My idea was to live one year in London and one year in Spain. The year in London became five. <laughs> And the year in Spain has been 17 already. So, yes, I, I, I went to, to, to Murcia because I found out this guy that um, he has his own office. But he was the director of the school of Alicante. Alicante is a public school here, here in Spain. At that time, it was the youngest uh, and newest uh, public school, architectural school. Because for many, many years, we, didn't have the, we had a set of schools in Spain. There were no new schools for many, many years. Hmm. And Alicante was the first new school that uh, became. And because he was the, the, the catedratico, the professor, uh, he set up the things his own way. No? So it was really interesting because we were so far away from Madrid or, or Barcelona, the big schools, that like, they have their own you know, structure and very big um, paternalistic style and stuff like that. So we set up this school in, in Alicante which was like very, very interesting you know, because it was one of the greatest. And um, I ended up working with him, you know, uh, Jose Maria Torres Nadal, because he offered me a job at his office. And he told me like, why don't you come work in my office and come with me and teach uh, at the University of Alicante because I need uh, people like you, you know, in, in, my, in my school. So I came to Spain and I started teaching at that, at that moment. And it was really interesting because as I told you, you know, we were like very strange school because we were like the underdogs of, of the whole educational system in Spain, but w with the direction of Jose Maria, you know, Jose Maria had very clear this idea of understanding architecture and this idea of understanding architecture no more like a craft that is the, the kind of education in Spain was at that moment, you know, like the rule, no? An architect has to be uh, craftsmanship. Sort of the master builder. Exactly, yeah. a master builder. And then in Spain you have this uh, curricula, which is super hard on... on on the technical aspects as well. No? So you were, you were almost an engineer, a master builder, and this uh, kind of uh, artist as well. No? So uh, we started changing a little bit that, you know, getting more into the... Personally, I was very, very interested in this area where architecture leaves the bricks behind. No? Always the, 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 the threshold of the professional architecture. I'm super interested in that. I've been all, all my life, no? I mean... I'm an architect, but I never actually practice. Uh, I mean, I built with Jose Maria. We built a couple of buildings. I was actually on the construction side because it was a very rewarding experience because I had all the different aspects of an office. No? I had to deal with the clients. I had to make contracts. I run the office on the administration part as well. So I learned a lot about the, the actual uh, technical part of uh, running an office, no? how it's 
to run a, a small office. And I get to build a couple of buildings, no? quite uh, good-sized buildings. But I realized building, you know, going to the construction site, I realized that that wasn't for me. No? Because at the end, for me, architecture depends. is such a long process, really, really long and painful process. And the role that the architect play on all this process is really so small that I was getting very frustrated, no? especially in this kind of setup, no? because, I mean, this was a one-man, one-guy office, so he has to do and deal with everything. No? So I realized that architecture was, I mean, architectural with bricks, it was not for me. So I gave up, no? I gave up, mm. uh, I gave up. Uh, but I keep on the teaching, because especially on the teaching side, we were experimenting a lot with this idea of what architecture can offer beyond buildings. No? And do you have um, an urge to conceptualize who you are at this moment? You said it what brought you back to architecture was in a way this dilemma. Are you still grappling with this dilemma at this uh, point? No, I don't know. Because, uh, you know, this kind of um, experience, you know, was a very hard on experience. No? I remember perfectly, I would say this anecdote, no? when I arrived to the construction site, Besides, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the east, 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 east part of Spain, no? Levante, which is very, very tough. No? It's like, I arrived and we were checking the, the measurements, no? And the guy, because I was, you know, setting on with all my team, making all the plans in millimeters, no? Not centimeters, millimeters, because it was a kind of high-tech structure. So we have to be like super precise on everything because it was like, it was a structure, um, a metal structure, but very, very... We were very, very on the edge, no? so we were using millimeters for everything. And I arrived to the construction site to check the, the measurements, and the guy tells me, and it was like, whoa, this is like 10 centimeters off, not but 10 centimeters. I called the guy, he's like, Manolo, come. He's like, what happened here? Well, I mean, this is the construction site. No? He's like, 10 centimeters off is nothing. No? 10 centimeters up, 10 centimeters down is nothing. Mm. No? So there, there, this was like this deja vu, not deja vu, but this... Eureka moment for me. It was like, whoa. I mean, we were making this huge effort at the studio with the engineers, with the installation guys and everybody, you know, to set up this kind of super high-tech um, building. But you're in the hands of very unexperienced people. No? Especially this was the time in Spain where, where the construction was like completely, um, we were in the boom of construction, you know. It was so difficult to get um, people to work for you. Hmm was super, super difficult to get. No? So you have to deal with very, very unskilled people. No? They just say, take it or leave it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like you have to work with what you have. No? And it was really very unskilled, unskilled uh, people that you're relying all your work on. No? So it was like, well, like, no, 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 this is not for me. No? Especially uh, because when I came to Spain, I started working on, on the digital realm again. You know, I started uh, this website that became super popular because it was one of the first websites devoted to architecture in the world. I started here in Spain. And I I started getting, you know, a lot of a lot of track with all the architects because all the boom of the websites started. And um, you know, I had this power of with you know with my phone, just one click away of sending messages to thousands and thousands of, of people, you know? And on the other hand you At have this point to, it's smartphone. No, no, not smartphone, but I had my, my, my phone cracked to, to so I was able to send messages from my phone to uh, my website. I see, I see. Huh. Uh, but I mean, or sitting on your laptop and um, write a post and send it and having thousands and thousands of people reading what you were, were saying. No? 
or what you were doing. On the other hand, you have these, you know, these buildings that take seven to ten years to complete, you know, relying on how many, so many hands. So I had this, uh, it wasn't really a dilemma, you know, because I took sides perfectly, you know. It was like, I mean... I'm you could suddenly control exactly all your... All, all, I yeah. control all. So I think it's really interesting, you know, this, this awareness of having the whole control on what you do. And I gave up, I mean, architecture as this architectural practice. I keep on teaching, I keep on teaching. And I started focusing a lot on, on, on communication as well, no? mm. which I think for me is is, uh, is key for architecture. And I think uh, that could be a subject that we can talk about uh, as well, no? because for me it's a key subject. Then I came to Madrid, and when I came to Madrid, I moved to Madrid, but I keep on teaching in Alicante. And what year is this? This, this year is 2002. Okay. Now, 2002, I came, I came to Murcia, and then 2005, I came to Madrid. Come to Madrid and I uh, keep on teaching in, in Alicante. And I start teaching at uh, here at some universities here in Madrid. No? IE, for example, mm. I start teaching at, uh, at IE and uh, Universidad Europea as well. And uh, my subject was exactly that. No? I was obsessed with this idea of communication. No? How bad uh, we architects are communicating stuff. You know, because we tend to speak only the language for architects to architects and, uh, you know, kind of not seeing the rest of, of, um, of society or the world that uh, surrounds us, but it's very important. No? So you were here also in the formative stages of this university then? Yep. Yeah. So this seems to be the, the common theme throughout your career, right? I mean, everything is sort of entering at the raw inception stages of something, whether it's computers in the beginning to... Yes you know, the office of Zaha Hadid or even how you talk about book publication uh, uh -huh. at the AA, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I think, I don't know, it's like this saying of uh, Steve Jobs, no? You cannot connect the dots, but until you are in the, at the end and look, look back, no? Not that you look back, it's quite easy to connect the dots. It's like, whoa, all this mm. comes together. But I mean, for you, it's natural, no? When you're doing it, it's like, well, I don't know. Yes, they call me because they were starting, i.e., University, it was just starting, the university, the bachelor's. So I was very well known because of the website and my work as a, as a professor. So they called me to, because they wanted to, they were interviewing people, you know, when they set up the, the new curricula here uh, at IE. So they, they, call, and they called me and I met them and uh, I stayed as a teacher for a couple of years. I was teaching here um, specifically that, no? communication, communication and uh, architecture, how important it is. To transmit the message, you know, in the different channels that we architects use, you no, know, which is not only for architects. And then design was launched when two thousand. It's been three years now. Yes, been. It's gonna be three years already. Okay, so within that long trajectory, when was the first time you heard the term design thinking? Oh, no, long, long, long time ago. Long time ago. Yes, I don't know because I've been. I mean, my website. Um, when I started the website, um, allow me to go back to this. Idea, no? I started the website in 2002, and my website was an architectural website, but it's quite, quite singular because uh, I had a rule. No? I don't talk about buildings in my website. No? I talk about architecture, but not, not about buildings. Uh, and I think it was quite interesting no? because for me, architecture, and at that moment I was starting to develop this idea of what, what architecture is, no? where the limits of architectures are. And uh, for example, one of the, the aspects that I was very interested all this threshold of the profession, you know? where is the limit? So I was always trying to 
for example, in my web on my website, I always wrote about all these kind of things, you know, things that are related to architecture somehow, but are kind of innovative in a way, innovative in in terms of of uh, what was happening or something. So I could be talking about a marketing campaign or something. So I start writing about the design thinking, you know, when it really started. You know, I don't remember. It should have been like uh, 2011 or something like that. When I found out the, um, these guys, what these guys were doing in in in, in idea, no? with the Stanford uh, School and everything, so I was very interested in, into that, no? because I was like, "Whoa, this is really interesting what they are trying to do." No, because I'm a super fan of Apple, you know, so I knew all the work that the, these guys were doing for for Apple at uh, the beginning, and then all this process that uh, brought them, you know, to develop. To understand design not only as the final thing that you do at the end, hmm. which is very Steve Jobs as well. Uh, frog design and an idea. At that time, you know, they were talking a lot about this. How design can um, go beyond the actual look of the things no? and go inside and, and more and more inside the essential way of, of, of doing the things. No? And what's your take on it now? Uh, right now, uh, I always kind of publicly say that I hate design thinking. I really hate design thinking because I think it, it didn't fulfill his original purpose, you know, because it became like this uh, trade word for a kind of a recipe, no? And I always give this, this example, no? It's like, for me, design thinking is probably the worst thing that could happen to design because it, um, you know, brought the... Um, the, the profession very down into the, the level of uh, professionalism. No? If I tell you, for example, that uh, because right now, you know, the, all these people that really don't know about design thinking, what the, what the essence of design thinking is, you know, you can have courses because I've been in them. No? In them no? Yes, you could be, I can make you creative in one morning with a package of post-its. No? This is the, what design thinking is uh, most, most of it today. What would you think if I tell you you know, uh, I can make you a doctor in one morning with a stethoscope. And this is called medical thinking. No? What would you think if I tell you medical thinking no? or legal thinking? Nobody will take that seriously. No? So design for me, I mean, design is a very serious profession. And design thinking or this idea that you can, you can become creative or you can become a designer in one morning with a package of post-its has done a lot of damage to the profession. No? Do you see... Um something embedded within the initial conception of design thinking that made it unable to achieve its ultimate goals? I think the problem with design thinking was when it really arrives to, to, to the business school. In my own perspective, it was this strange anomaly that I, I can link to a few things within architecture and urbanism. For instance, urban design, there are these um, methods, which to me, design thinking sounds like one method. Yes. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, it's a method that took off in other spheres more than others. Yes. But in urban design, there are folks who've framed certain methods of analyzing cities that um, a student may catch and say, oh, look, this is the method to analyze cities. But it's just one method. Yes. But for some reason, it's a strange one where those methods within urbanism, it's very popular amongst certain beginning circles yes. but then in later circles it's not really yeah, regarded as exactly. critically I, I think it's what happened exactly with the with design thinking no? it became super super uh, popular especially uh, when he went to, into the, the school no? in, in Stanford uh, 
business school because I think it was misunderstood as a recipe. No? So you had this idea, which is it's, it's an excellent idea, no? but you brought it in and you start selling it as uh, the recipe. This is my question. Uh -huh. Was it misunderstood as a recipe or was it designed as a recipe? I think I think it was misunderstood. I want to, I want to think, no? because I mean... I've read a lot about, uh, you know, um, I can't remember their names, you know, Kelly, Kelly, the, this, uh, the IDEO, uh, the IDEO guys, no? So I respect them a lot. I respect them a lot, no? So I don't think they were trying to sell it as a recipe, but they really believed, you know, the design has this power of, of changing things very deeply. And they were really pushing it for, pushing for it. But I think the problem was like, I don't know, somewhere in the middle, you know, it was like the right moment. For this to catch up, you know, mm. for for this sort of understood as a recipe, because it's quite easy, no? It's very attractive, no? If you do this, 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 and this, then you will have this. The simplicity one is yes. the the bit um, frightening one to me, I guess. Yeah, but I think it's one of the biggest, the biggest, the, the thing, biggest points, yeah. no? Because I mean, as as you were saying, you know, for for the uninitiated, un mm. you know, if I give you a recipe, it's like whoa, and it's because actually it's very rewarding, you know, the method is. Very rewarding because actually, if you follow the this design thinking methodology, you actually end up with something. Yeah, so it's very rewarding. You actually, if you follow the steps, you have a result, and I think that is another of the reasons. No, that it's like whoa, you actually get results. But the problem is like these results are not usually very, very, very useful or very profound. But you have something. No, so it's very rewarding, and I think that is part of the of the popularity. No, that makes sense. I mean, the 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 one close link I can think of. There's two examples within urbanism. One is a fellow by the name of Christopher Alexander, Pattern Language, um, which to me was, rereading it, quite surprising in how clearly it was supposed to be a manual. But embedded within that, you know, manual follow pattern 32, and pattern 32 says if you want pattern 32 to work, consult 67 and 89, and then those consult a whole bunch of other things. And in the end, it's like you're saying, the if you actually consult a range of these patterns, and looking back, there's some ones that are a, a bit questionable, but as a whole, a deep rigor embedded into this project. Um, if you follow through with it, you actually end up with a remarkably layered, uh, intricate urban urban condition. The other example is sort of new urbanism within, you know, I, I think probably a similar time period as, as design thinking that it, it's launch it, but a hyper simplified thing that talks about specific types of buildings, specific types of conditions, not too much about 600 patterns or anything of that sort, but a hyper simplified thing. And new urbanism was able to reach an export status that I think a pattern language, at least within architectural and urban circles failed to achieve. It, something about this simplification of thought uh, seems to be the link, but a pattern language, for instance, is still heavily regarded within deeper circles of discourse, but new urbanism, not so much. Yeah, because I think now you're talking about, you know, the, the time they appeared, you know, actually it coincides, you know, with the start of, for example, the internet, no? the access of information, you know, globally, it actually, it's, it's kind of sort of related as well. No? So, and that is, you know, the the, the, the turning point that uh, brought this oversimplification no? that had brought us to Instagram and Twitter, you know, like when just one image, you have to tell the story in one image or in 132 characters. Mm. So I think it's, it's very interesting to see how this relates to that. No? And seeing that probably 
as part of the popularity. The one thing too that really caught my eye about pattern language, embedded within it, there's this portion where the authors the authors talk about how this most likely isn't, or this certainly isn't a complete set of patterns mm -hmm. that you should invent your own and add additional, you know, find the gaps and address them properly. Within neurobanism, I don't, I don't think I've encountered that kind of vulnerability. And within mm. design thinking, I, I certainly haven't yeah. encountered that vulnerability. Because I think probably it's as well part of the selling, selling point, no? That this is, this is it. This is it, no? This is it. You don't need anything else. This is it. If you leave it open, it's like, well, this is it, but it's not a, a final thing. Is there a difficulty of establishing audience there? Like the, I see this often within. A, a lot of design within a lot of architecture within a lot of urbanism is that when it i mean students practitioners uh even scholars i think have a difficulty oftentimes of not quite understanding who they're talking to mm -hmm. meaning if you're talking to peers within a yes. research context a scholastic context uh -huh. it's very well expected that you would frame where this thing begins to crumble but when you're talking in a marketing perspective you take on a very different expert yeah. hat and you're supposed to frame this thing that's bulletproof yeah and design thinking it was there ever a period in which they were sort of both i mean were they from your conception of it did they try to frame uh, on the one hand yes this is what we're marketing but on the other hand in terms of professional uh -huh. discursive connections they would say yeah, this is one method amongst many. and I, I don't think so, no. I, th I yeah. think it was more towards the marketing thing. Because I think from the very beginning, you know, I don't think design thinking was aimed at designers ever. Yeah. I'm pretty sure about it. No? Because, I mean, when you think about, uh, you know, a designer, how he does design thinking, he's like, well, I think and then I design, no? It's not really, I mean, because you don't supposed to have a, a methodology, no? Mm. I'm very suspicious of designers that say they have a methodology. I'm always suspicious, no? Because it's like, how come, no? It's, it's, um, um, so I think from the very beginning, the idea was to oversimplify this. We have the same issue, I think, with research, uh, especially within architectural urban research, but I've, from what I've seen also within a lot of qualitative social science realms mm -hmm. and theory, I would say, um, a lot of people, when they start a research subject, sometimes they will begin to frame the subject according to a certain theoretical or methodological stance meaning i'm coming from this perspective i'm coming from this methodology and so that's how i'm going to approach this thing uh -huh. which the natural reaction to that is why and the the one methodology to me that i sang remarkably simple but very much accurate was uh was investigative journalism uh -huh. so investigative journalism i, I remember like when it, i was doing uh doctoral studies the just looking for methods that seem to make sense instinctively and finally it was uh i think it was forensic science and then investigative journalism but investigative journalism had this remarkable graph that said time equals truth meaning the more time you delve into a subject the closer to the truth you can get yes. and it was sort of this you know curve that never quite achieved the uh -huh. truth but it, it framed a range of ways you could investigate but it never framed this is the method to investigate, which I, I mean, from what I've heard from how you distinguish would be the difference between critical thinking and, and a specific methodology espoused by design thinking. Yeah, I, I completely agree, you know, because I think part as well of um, of this searching of um, of your way of doing things 
I mean, it's natural, no? If, you, if you're not uh, involved in that, it's, it's natural that it's very appealing to have a methodology, you know, a to-do list, a step-by-step line. But if you're really into that field, you know, more and more you start developing your own and uh, get rid of, you know, preconception of how things should be done. And I think it has to do with what you were saying, with time, no? with practice. Because at the end, you know, it's what we try to do here uh, at school, you know, like putting you a brief when you work on your brief, you know, giving a critique and starting developing, you know, like how to shape the way you start doing things. And that for me, that that's a part of what school should be doing, you know, should be doing with this. So ideally, you know, at the end of uh, four or five years of study, you develop your own starting point. I wouldn't say a, a methodology or a way of doing things, but at least you have like a proper starting point, mm. which with a bit of uh, critical thinking, you can keep on developing. And I, for me, at least in, in research, the most um, fascinating stuff is when you start to realize the pattern, if, if the results start to be similar. And then you say, well, maybe there's something embedded in the method pre-structuring the results. So you consciously sabotage your method. Uh -huh. I've heard actually there's uh, quite a few stand-up comedians who do this as well, where they, they would talk about, I got quite fascinated by the craft of it, so I was just listening to their okay. interviews and stuff but they would talk about how you know first they do a set run through it and then they sort of readjust and they do this for a period of six months a year uh -huh. maybe and they're just refining this craft of this joke and some would apparently sabotage themselves by starting with their end the big joke the big setup in the beginning so that then puts them at an uncomfortable position exactly. so then they have to recover from it which i find i mean i think that's the 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 beauty of, I mean, with an architect, architecture, design, research, urbanism, all these things, whenever you're investigating anything, I feel like once you figure out a path, the interesting part is then subverting that path and yeah. see if you come to a different outcome. I, I think one of the key, key, key words here should be this kind of trickle, tr critical mindset. So you are consciously doing this, you know, in order to, to, to perfect and uh, connecting this back to this idea, you know, I don't know, the, this methodology really is, uh, and we go back to this idea of time, you know, the more time you spend on it. So you're willing, you know, to really sabotage yourself mm. in order to confide, you know, this idea of is this really right or no, or is there a, be a better way of doing it? Uh, how can I recover from this? You know, but it's this co commitment, no? which I think in a way this kind of the same thinking lacks a lot, uh, you know, because the promise is the instant gratification of having a, a creative solution out of following these uh, six steps. Yeah. How is it regarded now? I mean, within within de within design uh, circles, what is the more and more? I mean, if we start from the point that in design it really never got up. Yeah. You know, because I think it have never got up in in design really. You know, had been more kind of businessy circles, uh, productivity circles, stuff. Uh, uh, more uh, company company circles, but in design, I and I don't think never never really caught caught up. Are there pockets within uh, academia that are heavily? I mean, aside from Stanford, uh -huh. obviously, but the yes, I don't think so because I mean, the thing is, for example, any any designers I don't know if you have read, seen this design thinking is bullshit uh, conference of uh, Jessica Chan. No? Jessica Chan is, a, is a, the partner of, uh, is one of the partners of Pentagram. It has this talk, which is called, the title is Design Thinking is Bullshit, 
And she explained that it was so popular, you know, when it came out like a year and a half ago, two years ago, it became so popular, but among designers, you know, because everybody was like thinking the same, but not mm. saying it uh, the, the way because she put it there perfectly, you know, and, uh, into words. And, um, but it, I, I think that really tells a lot about what the, the, the feeling in the design, design, professional design community was, no? I, th- I don't think it will never was really embraced. Such an un- anomaly to see it emerge from, I mean, a, a very rigorous design pocket. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's um, I think it has to do with, um, I mean, because it's not, the, it's not the first methodology or the first uh, trial to um, summarize how uh, creative, I mean, the same thinking is not really new no? in terms of uh, this is going to be the, the creative process uh, um, step by step, no? because I have been done a, a lot of times from the very, very long time ago, no? because it's, I mean, it's quite understandable, you know, like with this scientific mind, you know, try to try to come up with this uh, formula. No? It, it, it goes back to all these engineering circles of, of, um, of productivity and stuff like mm. that, no? that I think in engineering it's quite easier no? to have a pro- process and uh, for, for, for almost everything. And uh, I think it goes back into that. No? So this creative process, this need to have, you know, something to really hold on. The, the mystery is why it was never emphasized as such by the originators. For instance, new urbanism, I, I always had quite a, uh, I couldn't understand why it had the weight that it did within certain circles. Um, then there was this lecture that I recently listened to. I think it was from back in maybe 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago. I want to say 2011, mm-hmm. but it may be earlier. Um, but the it's one of the authors of essentially New Urbanism, whose name I can't remember. But the the way the lecture went was basically that this notion of the garden city, mm-hmm. uh, Ebenezer Howard and so on of the mm-hmm. late 1800s, was one of the most successful exports of the British Empire. And if you if you start that, if you start with that basis, new urbanism makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. That you grasp that this thing for essentially 120 years of time has been a consistent product that communities throughout the world have strived to achieve, then it makes sense mm-hmm. because it has certain issues of... Uh, certain conceptions of density, certain conceptions of uh, uh, architectural style, certain conceptions of, of um, connection to the rural environment, live-work conditions, things of this mm-hmm. sort. And so, but once you understand it as being based upon an export idea, yeah. then you say, okay, I get it. I get it. You, you understood this product and you dissected it down to its bare bones, the, these elements. Um, that I, I understood I just, if it was so bluntly explained within the proper discourse in which it it could be, then it, it's so much more deep, I think, because uh-huh. it talks about essentially shaping a product around a very, very specific understanding of an audience. And this is what I wish design thinking had, yes. is because it, if it vocalizes that, then you can suddenly distinguish between, okay, this is the audience A, and there's another audience, which is the deep design circles that can regard this thing in a very, very uh-huh. different way. But it, it, I, I've never heard that. Yeah, I think I think I read this. I think it was in a book of uh, Tim Brown. No, so the the real origin of of, of the same thinking, at least from 
from this uh, Tim Brown perspective and the, the idea, guys, uh, Tom Kelly and Tim Brown, I don't know if it's Tom, but it's Kelly, uh, what they really wanted to do is actually to call up this parcel of, of, uh, of work to the designers. No? So what they were actually trying to do is like to get a business to understand the value proposition of designers. I think that was the original aim for, for design thinking. Mm. Trying to claim this kind of, uh, put on this flag, you know, in, in, in pro of, of, of designers. But uh, I don't know exactly where it went a completely uh, different path. But originally, I think, I think it was, uh, that, that was the idea, no? Was there ever a moment when it seemed like it was gaining traction within design discourse, like rigorous design discourse? Um, no, I mean, uh, there is this, uh, this thing that were start developing, you know, like, it's, it's quite recent, like I would say some eight to ten years ago, you know, this strategic design, no? where actually uh, you start applying the, the design process into contexts that are not necessarily designed, mm. which I think it's, it's really like the, 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 the main idea start to take place, no? to understand that when you apply this design process to different contexts, it became um, very relevant in terms of the solutions. No? So it's, 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 it's the starting of strategic design, what, it, what, it's, mm. what it's called, no? where you design not objects, not interiors, and is this, it has to do with this claim, this original claim, no? that designers can provide so much more into society or, or business than just a pretty, pretty object or a pretty graphic. I was surprised. I think I was uh, looking at a range of institutions, and one of the ones that I think I saw recurrently was there, were, there would be schools of um, human ecology mm -hmm. or schools of like environmental analysis, yes. environmental design, this kind of stuff that had design thinking quite heavily mm -hmm. on their curriculum. So that was also a surprise. I remember this specifically, that there was a period of a year or two where if you were applying for jobs at um, these places, you would, you know, design thinking would be a keyword that you uh -huh. basically have to drop. Okay. Uh, and then within, you know, after that time period, it quickly vanished. Within a business circle, it makes complete sense. Engineering to design firms that have that. There may be still pockets within academia even where it's maybe it is that hybrid zone between pure sociological sort of, you know, studies and pure architecture design, but that middle ground that analyzes the in-between, it may actually have some force. Uh, yeah, I, th I think it has, uh, um, I think the, the, um, the relationship of design with the social sciences has a lot of, a lot of uh, to do with, uh, with this, no? Mm. I remember uh, the work of Bruno Latour, for example, uh, that is, it's very funny, but because all your this mentioning is like always when when um, sustainability comes in, it's like the factor that defines I don't know why, you know. But sustainability is always like in the middle. No, I think it has to do with this idea that we are facing super, super, extremely uh, complex problems, and uh, you need a way of approaching that. No? And sociologists are looking at you know the work of designers that brings some you know kind of academic validation that you were talking about. But this from sociology, look, looking into this kind of way of working of, of designers to bring it to, to solve uh, complex problems, no? or um, um, yes, com complex mm. problems. No? This is this idea of problems that doesn't have a solution. You know, the, in order to, to so solve these problems or try to solve these problems, you know, this creative methodology 
that brings designers in is very valuable. Tackling the, this this problem, no? sociology problem, no? and uh, I remember this uh, Bruno Latour, this is the theory of of widget widget problems. No? Mm. Where did you encounter Latour? Uh, I did a master degree in, in when I was in Alicante. We did a, a master degree on, on um, we call it uh, complex architectures. At that point, we know we, we were we were looking for this idea of complexity in architecture, not architecture as uh, in a building, but architecture as understanding. So we brought in, you know, one of the pillars of, of the master, this master I did was, the, the first one was an architectural project, which was the smallest one, but the other one was, was uh, sociology. Sociology of innovation, which is a theory from uh, Bruno Latour. And uh, these guys uh, came a lot to give us a lot of classes, you know, that they used to work with Bruno Latour in, in, in Paris. Uh, and they, they used to come, to, they were our teachers. No? So that's why I have this encounter with uh, Bruno Latour and all this idea of the wicked game, wicked, wicked uh, problems. Latour is interesting within, uh, at least the US, he exists quite heavily within certain geographies. <laughs> uh, so in terms of my background, I, you know, I studied a bit in the Southeast, a bit uh -huh. in the Northeast, and a bit in the Northwest. And certain pockets, Latour exists as if the dominant, uh -huh. it is the dominant discourse. Other pockets, it's never mentioned. Yeah, that's why I was curious if it See, was. A no, no, no. This was, uh, I mean, it was really like part of the, the backbone of the of the of the, the legacy master. of Latour, sort of actually trickling there. Because especially uh, at that at that point, you know, I, personally, I was very interested in this idea of, you know, this is the time. This is the, the might be 2007, something like that. No, that all these big exhibitions start to come out. No, like uh, this big. Um, these big exhibitions that uh, Bruce Ma was doing. He did one with Bruno Latour, then Bruno Latour did another one by himself. But these big exhibitions, you know, stating this complexity of the world we live in and the, the role that architects and designers are playing within this context. I think it's somehow related. I don't see the connection exactly how, but my intuition tells me that it's, it's connected with this idea of, you know, like grasp, grasping complexity, the complexity we were living in and trying to, to put it into 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 paper or in an mm. exhibition or, or document. No? The funny one I see too is the uh, the scope of authorship within that complexity. Yes. In that it, it seems simultaneously to be an assumption that there's the authorship is inherently invisible, mm -hmm. but also at the same time that it's very palpable. Meaning that you have a, a, a conduit, this mm -hmm. architect, designer, urbanist, what have you, <clears throat> and they're at the center of this um, complex, at the center of this complex condition, and they're absorbing all of these different variables. Mm -hmm. And what is assumed is that as a neutral sort of product, as a neutral product, what's produced is the distillation of it or the analysis of it. So from a methodological stance it sounds like the architect the urbanist the designer inherently has no voice that uh -huh. they're purely a, a conduit of fact yes. but it it seems actually quite the opposite on another hand in that you need this conduit and that the conduit has a, an almost prophetic stance mm. they're the person that has to do the distillation the ingestion and then the analysis to yes. be able to produce this thing i, th I think something something to, to to bring into the, the discussion i think is remember talking about this uh, this not era but this these times of um copyleft and uh, creative crowd crowd um 
crowd creation, no? I think we cannot separate that from from that. No? I'm thinking about uh, Pekka Himena no? mm -hmm. and the, the 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 ethics of the hacker. You know where you have this this pyramid. No, once you fulfill your basic needs, the, the secondary needs. You know the the only need is about just <clears throat> enjoyment, and that's why you you can make work for free. No, in terms of, in terms of speaking specifically about uh, Linux, for example. No, you know Linux is a it's an open source uh, software uh, operating system that is built by millions and millions of, of, uh, of people, but it has this figure, you know, like Linus Torvaldus, which is like the, the final uh, decision maker that has to be there. No? And somehow I see some relationship with what, what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. no? You have millions and millions of people, you know, apporting in, in solutions to this huge and very complex problem. But at the end, you have this um, visual, visual um, figure of a person, you know, just making the big final decision. Even though, for example, Linus Torvaldus has been always declared this kind of uh, benevolent uh, dictatorship. He always, like, you know, has to mediate between two, two choices. He always chooses the one that is more efficient, no? Because it's his, his project, no? It's his project that... So he has this kind of benevolent... Uh, benevolent... Um, I, attitude. I, I was never aware of that uh, uh -huh. that story. That's quite fascinating. So, we, from the conception, it was it was framed this way. Yeah, totally. I mean, Linus Linus Torvaldus is a, is a programmer, you know. But at some point, he invented this uh, new operating system based on on um, on another piece of software. Uh, so he invented his own operating system, no? and he immediately crowdsourced it. Exactly, immediately because he put it online, and he was like, okay, well. I'm a programmer. I earn my I earn enough money, you know, to 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 pay my my bills and everything. I don't want to be a millionaire. I just did this for fun, which is the 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 Pekka Himenam uh, thesis, no? The the theory, the ethics of the hacker. It's like it's, it's a hacker, no? It's like I do this for fun. It's quite good. I'm a professional. I did this for fun. Here, enjoy it, no? Help me. No, he didn't ask for for help at the beginning, no? He just posted it online, and someone was like, "Whoa, this is cool." But it has this and this problem, no? So mm -hmm. they start co contributing. It's like, why don't you change this and this, you know? Because this is a small problem. It's like, oh, yeah, but I don't know how to deal with the uh, printer drivers, for example, when, when, the, when, when the history of Linux, you know, when Linux started growing like a proper operating system, then they had support for, for certain printers, no? It's like, well, it's because I, can, I cannot build a driver for every single printer that is in, on the market, no? Because I'm one guy. So people start getting into the project. No, it's like, well, I have this printer, you know, I need a, a driver for my printer. When I'm a programmer, I can do it, you know, so I can contribute with this small piece of software that only works for this piece of hardware, which is this kind of specific model of printer. But in the world, there are a lot of people that have this model that will benefit from what I'm doing. No? So he writes this piece of software and puts it in, in and they start developing this, one of the most powerful operating systems in the world. No? And is there a profit sharing structure embedded no, into that? No, not at all. Not at all. Oh, it's, so it's, it's all open source. That's it's open the, source, that's yeah. The key. I mean, the, this is, the, the, this is the, the, the born of open source and copyleft and, and, and open source start from there. No? So he put this thing, I mean, open source existed already, no? but I think this is the most visual example of what open source could do. You know? There are like 15,000 programmers contribute, contributing to, to, to Linux. Anybody can contribute to it. And they're global. And the global. So you submit something and it goes to the, the head honcho. Exactly. Linus Torvaldus. Linus Torvaldus is a... But is a, is a, well, that's his real name. It's yeah, that's his real name. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. He's Finnish. Okay, okay. It's, it's very funny because he's Finnish and Pekka Himenam is Finnish as well. And they're more or less the same age. It's, it's not, Pekka, Pekka is more... It's even, um, 
younger. Yeah, I thought that was his handle name or something. Like handle no, 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 no. It's uh, Linus, Linus, Linus Torvaldus. The president is called I Linux see. because it's from his name, Linus, with an X because it's Unix. And so from the conception, it's, it's been understood as this... Totally. Yeah, it's the greatest example of, of open source. But the, the, the governance structure that you talked about, mm -hmm. it was... Yeah, it was, it was built uh, naturally, no? Because, I mean, huh. at the end, I'm the owner of the, of the code. I mean, I, I was the one who started the code. And it's all this about uh, this meritocracy, no? That um, um, open source works about, you know, it's meritocracy. Like, who has the most merit? The more capable. But his was his project, you know, he's very... Because I think it has to do with this meritocracy... It's, it's, it's a very interesting concept as well, no? Because you earn the respect of the rest just because of your, of your merits alone, no? It's not because you're more, more rich or more powerful. Just because, in this case, was because he's a very, very likable guy, no? It's like, he was cool. I mean, he was cool enough to give his, his, his work for free, no? So he got the respect of all the peers. And he has a legacy of making decisions in a consistent exactly yes exactly because when he started like making decisions because it was his project so everybody contributing to, to his project i mean he has the final decision all the time no so uh, it was he made a reputation of being like very very fair in terms of you know because of course there's people involved you know there are conflicts so he always like was like okay the project is the first no i don't uh, the more efficient way this is more efficient than this this solution is more efficient than that let's kill this one he go, and that got him the respect as well of, of the community. You know? So it's super, it's super interesting. This is what's the time period it was launched? What was the? Uh... This should have been. Oof, I don't remember. It must be somewhere around 2002, I think. I would say something. Yeah. I was on this uh, thesis review two days, two days ago, four days ago, but there was a fellow who talked about um, the emergence of of um the internet back in the 1990s as being sort of the wild west uh -huh. where it was much more democratic much more egalitarian or let's say much more raw about who could launch and who could do what uh, -huh. uh so it had this i guess the hacker uh aura distributed all throughout and something occurs in the 2000s where you know, big business essentially starts to kick into it. And yes. now, even though the capacity to communicate seems to be distributed much more widely with, you know, Twitter, Facebook, uh -huh. Instagram, and so on, with social media as a whole, let's say. Uh, but the that rawness hacker mentality seems to have been lost from it. I don't think so. No, I don't agree. This is Because I think we should separate, no? What we see internet as it is right now, and what is this internet or has been internet no? for a certain profile? Because my first uh, 1991, you know, I started using internet on, and around that time, no? that it wasn't even called internet, no? because it was this, um, I mean, hackers had been using, uh, you know, this kind of networking for a long time. Way before, you know, what we understand as, as mm -hmm. internet today. No? So it was quite usual, 1991, you know, we, you had this, way of connecting, you know, through different... It wasn't internet because it exists, but you had Prodigy and CompuServe, all these private internet companies that worked a lot as a, as a work forums. So, I mean, for this kind of profile, you know, for hackers, you know, the internet had been there for... Yes, of course, for, for the end user, you know, it's been a huge change, you know, in the latest years. But, but for the hacker use, it's, I mean, it hasn't been... It doesn't come that much difference. 
Because, for example, I mean, right now, today, even today, for example, um, GitHub, which is the biggest uh, source um, software sharing uh, site, you don't even have, I mean, you have a graphical interface, but everything is about text uh, still, no? So it hasn't evolved that much in terms of, of interface. No? So if you got to get, get GitHub, it's like everything is done by text. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I guess the, um, the quality of the, the, the fact that you, you talk about two types of users essentially going into it. Yes. But for one, the, this raw nature is still, I guess, heavily fought for and heavily uh, defended in a way that it's, you know, it's able to maintain pockets of activity beyond the, beyond the mainstream. Yeah, because, uh, that, I mean, that brings us back to our conversation about design thinking, for example, no? If you think about two kinds of users, you know, the pro user yeah. and the, 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 the novice or the entry-level user, we go back with this perspective of having two users. Makes sense as well. No? It explains the, 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 the success of design thinking. No? That's design a great thinking, connection, yeah. I don't think never was aimed to the professional, to the professional uh, user. No? And the critical thinking has maintained its grasp exactly. throughout. Exactly. All right, I think that's a good point. To yeah, end excellent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I think we we, we went back to this loop. to this point, and uh, yeah. All right, thank you, Edgar. Thank you. Bye.